Man, I am excited for today, excited for today. Got a lot of updates for you. Uh, but before we go, before we go in that direction, let me ask you this question. Um, how many people ate more than one plate of food for Thanksgiving? Praise Jesus. If you only ate one plate, I don't, I mean, I don't know what's wrong with you, all right? Here, I just need you to shout this out. Um, if you prefer turkey, make some noise. If you prefer ham, make some noise. If you eat another meat besides those two, make some noise. Here's my, here's my question. Why do we pick the driest meat to serve on Thanksgiving? Turkey is dry sometimes. Some of y'all are like, you just don't know how to make turkey. You're right. I've never made a turkey before. I'm the one that just shows up and eats turkey. Man, we had, we had a great Thanksgiving. I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, where is Chaz? Chaz was here for first service. Is Chaz here for second? I don't think he's here for second service. Um, Chaz, Chaz is out there. Oh, Chaz has the baby out there. Darren's giving me sign language in the back. He's over here doing this outside. There he is. Chaz, did you eat your, what was the weird thing that y'all make? Yeah, but how did you explain it when you were in service last time? Yeah, he was like, we have bacon and, and pecans in our sweet potatoes. I'm like, that sounds kind of weird. He invited us over. I had some. It's not weird. I'm, I'm here to tell you it's not weird. Does anybody's family make a weird food that would seem weird to the outside person for Thanksgiving? What do you make? Like Korean, food. Korean food. That's a, that's, that's a good Thanksgiving, right? Will you stand up, James? Turn around so people can see you. Okay, now you get why they have, okay, there you go. All right, he's like, we have Korean food. And everybody's like, why is he eating Korean? Anyway, I digress. What about somebody else? Anybody, what do you have? Deep fried prime rib. I'm coming to your house next Thanksgiving. Carol set it up. You talk to Jenna. We'll make sure that we're there. I literally said that to my brother-in-law. Uh, we were sitting there eating Thanksgiving. I said, hey, next year, let's make some ribeyes or something. And so I think that's what we have to, does anybody have a tradition like that, ribeyes? I, I have a friend that their tradition is making homemade pizza. That's kind of weird for Thanksgiving. I digress. I hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. Uh, listen, I don't know if you're like my family, but when we're together for Thanksgiving, everybody kind of sits around the table and, and you talk family business and you get some updates about everything that's going on in the family, right? So today I've got some family business for you to talk about. I told you I was going to kind of bring you along this journey uh, with us. And, and I want to talk to us about our building program that we're stepping into. So last week I told you, and many of you know, pause. Let me say this. Hey, if you're visiting with us today, feel free to listen to this information. Feel free to listen to all the numbers. Uh, but hey, this is for our family if you consider this part of your, your church home. Uh, so last week I told you, we purchased a, a piece of property in a church building at 659 Carpenter Avenue in Mooresville, North Carolina. Somebody make some noise for that because that's something we are excited about. And uh, because of the sale of our land and just stewarding finances well, uh, we've been able to make some strides and to do a few different things. And, and I'm just kind of bringing you along the journey. We're open, we're transparent. We want you to know all the numbers as well. So because of the stewardship, because of the sale of our land, uh, we were able to put down 25% on the purchase of the church uh, facility. That total was $2.1 million. So we were able to put down $525,000. We were able to pay 70% of our AVL cost, which was $275,000. And we were able to put $120,000 into savings towards the renovations of the facility. Somebody give the Lord a hand clap of praise uh, because that's, that's the Lord just continuing to bless us. Now, let me tell you where we are now. Our goal is to move into the facility 
Easter of 2024. Some of y'all are like, all right, that's December, that's January, that's February, that's March. That's in, that's in four months. In order for us to do this, we take our miracle offering at the end of every year. And, and we've put together the numbers for phase one and for us to move in to the facility. The numbers for phase one in total is $1 million. That allows us to upfit the facility. If you take a look at the cards in your seat, go ahead and, and pull those out. Our goal is to raise $1 million by the end of 2024. That allows us to do all the renovations that we need to do on the facility. Now, there's another number that I'm going to give to you as well. It's $475,000. Our goal is to raise that by next Sunday, so December the 3rd. So again, remember what I just told you, we have $120,000 in the bank and we wanna make that, the rest of that up next Sunday. If you take a look at the back of that card, you'll see two different sections. The first section that you'll see is our miracle offering section. That's what we're focusing on next week. The second section or the bottom section, we'll revisit that in January, this coming January, and we'll do a building campaign where you make a, a year long commitment from January through December. So again, our total that we want to raise is $1 million. You'll see that on the front of that card. Next week, our goal is to raise $475,000 because that amount allows us to get into the building. How many of you have ever bought a house and you're like, oh, we're going to do all these renovations on the house. And then you move in and you're like, oh, renovations take money. And we can't, we can't do what we needed to do until some of y'all are laughing because you're like, yeah, we talked about it three years ago and still hadn't done the renovations. But but we know that we have to upfit this building before we move into it. And it's gonna take those funds. Now that first phase or that phase 1A, that's gonna be a brand new sanctuary. All of our AVL equipment, all of our lighting equipment, everything to make service kind of run, all of our online system. It's also going to include our brand new lobby where we're able to kind of commune and meet. And it's going to include our kids' wings. So brand new floors and lighting and walls and, and HVAC. And I, I know, Pastor Manny, HVAC does not sound super appealing. But how many of you know that kids need heating and air as well? Some of y'all are like, we, we work in kids. And if it's too hot, kids go crazy. If it's too cold, kids go crazy. We, na- we need the perfect temperature so kids don't go crazy. Uh, so we're putting a whole new HVAC system in there as well. But, but more importantly, uh, that means more salvations and more baptisms. It means that we get to be a beacon of hope and light Monday through Sunday, not that we're just setting up church on a Sunday morning. And when I say baptisms, I mean this. Y'all have experienced some of our baptisms. And most of them are outside. And sometimes the, the temperature does not cooperate. So we had to buy, we had to buy a portable hot tub and so, <laughs> to, do our, our, to do our jacuzzis in, to do our baptisms in. So we'd plug it in and, and hope and pray that it would warm up. And you would see people walk outside. It's like 40 degrees outside. And they're getting into this water to be baptized. Here's the beautiful thing. We can do baptisms inside now when we move into that facility. So that's something to, to be excited about as well. But again, our focus is on our miracle offering for next week, December the 3rd. I can throw all the numbers on here and we're always transparent about our numbers, but I always end by saying this, don't do the math, do your part. Because it's really simple for us to look at that number and go, well, I can't give that much, but if I give, and we we start doing this calculus problem in our brain and it doesn't add up, don't do the math, do your part. What I would challenge each and every one that calls Multiply Family home to do is this, go home and pray. And ask the Lord to stretch you. Ask the Lord what he's calling you to give. Because what I know is this, God's not broke. 
Heaven is not empty. But God does partner with the faithful giving of people. So what's God calling you to give towards our miracle offering? If you'll allow me, I just want to pray over this for just one second. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to to expand your kingdom. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to partner with you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, you would speak to our minds, and you would speak to our souls, and you would challenge us to give. Lord, I pray that you would put a number on our heart that causes us to to stretch our faith a bit. Not for the sole purpose of just moving into a building, but so that we could truly be a beacon of hope for our community. So the individuals could find life, they could find freedom, they could find family, and they could find purpose. Lord, so that, that marriages could be restored, so prodigal sons and daughters could come home. That we would be able to raise up the next generation to serve you. There's so, there's so much pain and so much agony in this world. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that reaches out to truly be your hands and feet. And everyone said, amen and amen. Well, last week we started talking about practical ways to, to partner with God. And we stepped into our series called Gatekeepers. And we're going to step into week two of that series. And last week we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah. And we started looking at the the Israelites as they came out of the captivity of Babylon and moved into Jerusalem. And Ezra's kind of leading the charge and and, and we found that there's kind of this revival happening, that the temple was rebuilt, that people were experiencing the presence of God inside the temple, and, and they were taking it into their homes, but but they were kind of just going back and forth between their home and the temple. There was another prophet in the Old Testament. His name was Nehemiah, and and Nehemiah was still in captivity in in Babylon. He hadn't made his way back to Jerusalem yet, and and he sent a message to Ezra, and he says, Ezra, how's it going? And Ezra's response is, hey, the temple is rebuilt, and people are experiencing the presence of God. And Scripture tells us in Nehemiah chapter 1 that Nehemiah's heart broke, and he began to weep and pray. And the reason that he began to weep and pray is because he says that the the fire of the altar didn't make its way to the gates of the city. Because what we know about Jerusalem in, in that time frame is that the temple was rebuilt, but the city gates were still destroyed. The city gates were still torn down. And we read in scripture last week that you and I are called to be gatekeepers. That Psalm chapter 24 calls us living gateways tells us to lift lift up our heads and welcome in the king of glory. Last week I mentioned that it's about the altars and the gates. It's about revival and renewal. It's the church and the city. Why? Because we are called gatekeepers. I kind of challenged this last week and I said, hey, what would it look like if you showed up to the meeting? If you showed up to your workplace, if you showed up a few minutes early and you began to pray and welcome in the king of glory as scripture tells us. So I'm going to call some people out by a show of hands. Who showed up a little early this week and and prayed before a meeting? A few of you. Hey, if you didn't show up this week, this is what I know. Pastor, Pastor Manny and I, we had a meeting this past week. And uh, I called him. I said, hey, can we get there a few minutes early? I just want to pray. So we showed up to this meeting uh, about 20 minutes early. We threw on some worship music, and we just began to pray and welcome in the King of Glory. And and I don't know about you, but for me, it absolutely changed the atmosphere of that meeting and that conversation. 
It's not something that we just want to talk about on Sunday, but we want to implement it Monday through Saturday as well. How do we welcome in the king of glory? What would happen if you showed up to your workplace? What would happen next year or what would happen on Christmas if you showed up a few minutes early to the house that everybody was gathering at and you said, listen, Lord, I know that there's, there's some discord in our family, but I, I'm praying for unity for Christmas. I'm praying that there won't be chaos for Christmas. What, what would happen if you welcomed in the King of Glory even into your family? That, that's, a hard one for, that's a hard one for me to think about. Man, what, what would help it happen if you welcomed in the King of Glory into every situation of your life? Again, Psalm 24 says, lift up your heads, you living gateways, and welcome the King of Glory. And today I want to continue to uncover this idea of being a modern day gatekeeper. We have to look at the Bible. We have to look at the historical context. And what we know is that, that David and Samuel appointed 212 gatekeepers for positions of trust in guarding the temple of the Lord. And all of these gatekeepers had different roles and different responsibilities, and they were called to man their post. Not only were they called to guard it, they had charge of the keys and, and were called to open the temple each and every morning. Theologians say that some of them were in charge of articles used in the temple service. They, they counted them when they were brought in and when they were taken out. Taken out. Others were assigned to take care of the furnishings and, and all other articles of the sanctuary, as well as special flour and wine and olive oil and incenses and, and spices. So all these things were coming in and out of the temple, and the gatekeepers were in charge to make sure everything was in order. Now, we talked about this briefly last week, that the book of Ezra records 139 gatekeepers that came from Babylon to Jerusalem. And what we know in Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 1 is that the gatekeepers were some of the first positions that Nehemiah appointed when he made his way to Jerusalem. But, but why is that so important? Why is it significant? How, how do you and I begin to incorporate that in the modern church? How, how many of you read the Old Testament sometimes and go, I don't know how I'm supposed to incorporate that today? So as we dive into scripture, we have to begin to peel back the layers and understand what the Lord is teaching us. The Lord, uh, one theologian writes this, the Lord's house required gatekeepers for the same reason. Before God's business could be conducted properly, only the prescribed priest and other designated servants could be allowed through the gates. God had given clear commands about temple business. Gatekeepers were part of the holy business and their positions were considered sacred. As King David is, is entering the end of, or coming into the end of his life and, and he's making the preparations to pass over everything to his son Solomon, one of the crucial elements in this entire transition was, was to make sure everyone was accounted for and appointed for. A theologian writes this, that, that this included assigning leadership position and duties, duties of the Levites, duties of the priest, naming family leaders among the Levites, duties of the musicians, naming treasurers and other officials, naming military commanders and divisions, naming the leader of the tribes, assigning officials to the kingdom, and listing the duties of the gatekeepers. 
again, we have to begin to understand this principle as a 21st century church. I said it like this last week. The fire of the altar has to reach the gates of the city. What we experience on Sunday morning has to make itself known Monday through Friday in our workplace. We can't just encounter God on a Sunday and leave it at Sunday. Last week, I mentioned one of the biggest fears that I have as a pastor is that individuals would walk in this room, they would experience Jesus, they would experience the Holy Spirit, and it would stay in this room. They would have an encounter during worship where something changed in their hearts and in their minds and in their souls, and it stayed within these four walls. It's one of the biggest fears that I have as a pastor. If we're not taking what we encounter or who we encounter outside the four walls of the church, then all we are are spiritual narcissists. I'm going to worry about me, myself, and I. I'm going to get my fix. I'm going to get my weekly check mark, and, and then I'll deal with it again next week. What, what I hope doesn't happen in our church services is that someone says, man, that was a great experience. I can't wait to get back there next Sunday. Why? Because we can experience the, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit Monday through Saturday as well. Now listen, Sunday morning is important. The Bible says that community is important. If we're not a part of a community, if we're not a part of a flock, then the enemy tries to pick us off. So this is important. But the other is important as well. It's, the, it's a different side of the same coin. You can't have one without the other, what if we took the fire of the altar to the gates of the city? Without a thriving local church, the community has no hope. But let that sink in for just a second. Without a thriving local church, the community has no hope. The way that God has structured it is the local church is the median by which he chooses to expand the message of Jesus to the world. It's not about a building, but it's about the people inside the building. It's about us gathering together and then going out to the gates of the city. Without repairing the gates, we turn the fire of God into spiritual narcissism. And we have to take a look at at what we experience on Sunday and we have to take a look at what we experience in small groups and, and we have to begin to allow that to make its way into our workplace and our family life and other people that we encounter. Last week, I told you about the story of Dakota. They were in first service and I told you that Dakota got baptized here several months ago and he went, posted on social media, went to his workplace and, and people started asking him questions like, hey, what, what was that about? And he began to have these conversations of being baptized and what that means. And, and on a work trip, he was able to take a few of his colleagues to go get baptized at a beach. It is, it is awesome. But here's the deal, Viviana. There's more stories like that. I, don't, I can't tell Dakota's story every single week. And so in my notes, I'm, I'm going to do it like I do, did first service. So in my notes, I said this. Um, what do you work, who do you work for? Who or what do you work for? Question mark walk around and ask people if they would share Jesus in their profession. That's, li that's literally like what's, what's in my notes right now. And then I began to talk to God. And I was like, Lord, are you, are you sure? Like, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable at church. Should I really walk around and ask them what they do and, and who they work for and ask them if they would share Jesus? Because I just, I just don't want to make them uncomfortable. 
And I didn't hear an audible voice from God. But maybe you've been here before. I had this gut check. And he was like, oh, you don't want to talk about me to people, but you expect them to talk about me? Or do you expect them to talk about God to people in their workplace? Like my toes were getting stepped on a little bit. So I don't care if you get uncomfortable. I'm going to do what the Lord asked me to do. Is that all right? So y'all can take it up with him later. So I'm going to walk around a little bit. And I'm going to pick on a few people that I know first, and then I'll go to some people that I don't really know. So Matt, Matt, what do you do? What do you do for work? Merchant, merchandise, that's a mouthful, merchandising specialist. All right. What would happen if you started talking about Jesus in the workplace? Positive. Some positives? Some, some questions. So have you ever been able to talk to anyone about Jesus at, at church yeah. or at work? Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. Um, did they immediately fall down like, ask for forgiveness of all of their sins, snot nose crying, and they, they were laid out on the floor. they like, I'm in this thing. No. Probably not, right? No. Did any of them follow up with questions later? Yes, and they took it away and pulled it on. And then they, they thought, so, so what you're saying is that, that God isn't calling us to save anyone. He's calling us to be available for conversation. If we can get that through our heads, then life is a lot easier. You and I aren't called to save anyone. In fact, we don't have the ability to save anyone. God calls us to be available to step into conversations so that when they present themselves, we're able to share the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. That, that's one of the hardest things for me to learn sometimes because I'm like, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to have all the answers. I'm supposed to know every spiritual thing that there is to know. And people are, many people ask us a lot of hard questions. And there's times that we look at them and go, I don't know, but I'm going to go study that and I'm going to go read it. Does, it. does anybody ever ask you a question at work and you don't always know the answer and you have to go research it? That, that's okay. The same holds true with following Jesus. We don't have to have all of the knowledge. I would rather someone look me square in the face and go, hey, that's a great question. I need to go study that. I need to go learn that for myself. Opposed to just trying to shoot from the hip and make something up to make it sound good along the way. Because that's the default as a Christian. Well, I don't know. You just need to pray about it. Well, why don't you go research it? Let, let, let's talk about this together. What if that's the crack in the door that allows you to step into a conversation to dive into scripture and not just say, well, I believe this because I think that it's true, but let's dive into the word of God. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Go, hey, you know what? Tomorrow at lunch, can we follow up with that? That's a great question. And then you go get on the phone and go call Pastor Manny. Don't call me. Like ask, ask him if he knows the answer to it. But what would it look like if we got it through our minds that we're not called to have all the answers. We're not, we can't save anyone. We're just called to be available for the spirit to work in and through us. Lift up your heads, you living gateways, and welcome in the king of glory. That's what we're called to do. We're created to welcome in the king of glory. Jesus himself says we can't. He's the one that died on the cross. We did it. So what would it look like if we began to take that in the fullness of, of what the Bible tells us? You're also gatekeepers of your heart, your home, and your city. Now, here's the aha moment that I had. 
Because the book of Ezra reminds us that it's not that we have to become a gatekeeper. We have to realize that we're already called gatekeepers. It's not this process of becoming. It's who you are. When you step into a relationship with Jesus, what does he call you? He calls you heirs to the throne. What else does he call you? He calls you sons and daughters. It's not this process of becoming a gatekeeper. You have become a gatekeeper when you step into a relationship with Jesus. So we're going to dive into 1 Chronicles today because it gives us this masterful insight on lineage and genealogy. Dramatic pause. Because when I say lineage and genealogy, you're like, okay, great. How many of you get to a, a page in the Bible and you see a list of names, you go, that's a lot of names. And next. <laughs> Y'all be honest with yourself, all right? First service was, was semi-honest. <laughs> but we do it sometimes. We get to this page, it's got a list of names, and you're like, that's a lot of names. I recognize a couple. I can't pronounce three-fourths of them, so next page. But it's important that we pause and we look at genealogy. It's important that we pause and we, we look at names because all Scripture can teach us Something, if we keep reading in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 1 says this. These are the divisions of the gatekeepers. And then there's this list of, of names. There's three groups or three names that we're going to learn from this morning. If you're taking notes, write this down. The first one is this, the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. What, what do the sons of Korah teach us? The sons of Korah teaches us that gatekeepers are people of the prophetic. We're people of the prophetic. Verse 1 says this from the Korites, there was Mishmala, son of Korah. This is where we have to dive in and to begin to ask ourselves questions, not just gloss over the words that are on the page, but begin to study scripture, begin to go deep, to peel back the layers. So ask yourself this question, who were the sons of Korah? You have to find it in scripture. You have to dive into it. They were the prophetic singers of Korah's clan who wrote many of the Psalms. Pastor Zach, how do you know that? If you turn to Psalm chapter 46, you'll see there the sons of Korah wrote many of the Psalms. They wrote many of these worship anthems. What we have to learn is this from the sons of Korah. We should understand the difference between the office of the prophet, the gift of prophecy, and the believer's prophetic voice. And we've been talking in our Bible study on Thursday morning when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What is prophecy and, and is it weird? Is it biblical? Is it for today? What I've realized is this, anything and everything that you don't study is going to seem weird to you. I don't care what you're involved in or not. If you're not involved in something, if you don't understand it, it automatically seems strange and weird. For example, there's several of us here that do CrossFit. For many of you, you look at us and go, you're weird. See, there's always somebody. Don't do real pull-ups. I'll do more real pull-ups than you can. Jab, jab, jab. Take that out of the recording if you can. <laughs> what, about, what about ballet? Anybody enjoy ballet in here? You enjoy ballet. First, she's like, yeah, I've never heard you be that loud about anything in your entire life for as long as I've known you the last three and a half, four years. Here's the deal. You love ballet. For some people, they're like, ballet, that's weird. But it's weird because they've never experienced it. How about the opera? Anybody enjoy the opera in here? Yeah, a few of you. Matt, you like the opera? Really? 
I learned something new today. I pick on you and I learned something new. But some people wouldn't enjoy the opera because they haven't studied it. They don't understand what's going on. So you just drop them in. They're like, that's weird. How, how about NASCAR? Anybody like NASCAR in the room? Some of y'all are like, they just do left turns. How hard can it be? It's weird. Like Formula One's better. <laughs> no, it's not. But things can seem weird if you don't understand it. Where's my tennis players in the room? I'm picking my tennis players in the room. See, tennis is weird. Pickleball's where it's at. You know what I'm saying? Like, see, do, do you hear Do you hear it in the room? Ping pong on the ground. Ping, it's ping pong on the ground. But do you hear it in the room? There's like this dichotomy. Why? Because I don't understand it. I'm a purist. It's tennis all the way. No, I'm, I, I love the new thing. So I want to try a pickleball, but you don't understand it. So there's like this. And I know we're just bantering back and forth. But there can be this dichotomy. Because if we don't understand it, if we don't dive into it, it can naturally seem weird. Damon, Damon runs more miles than anyone in this room every single week. That's weird to me. Jenna and I, for my sermons, I'll, I'll sit at the, the kitchen counter. Girls are in the bed, and I'm like reading my notes to Jenna. And, and I was asking her uh, Tuesday of this past week, I said, Jenna, I said, babe, what, what's something that can seem weird to someone if, if someone does it and, and another person doesn't? And she said this. She said, well, well being, being a, a vegan can seem weird to people. I said, no, babe, that is weird. <laughs> if you're a vegan in the room, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll eat enough meat for both of us. But what, what, does, what does the Bible teach us? We have to dive in. We have to try to understand it. What I know is this 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 31 teaches us that every believer has a prophetic, prophetic voice. Verse 31 says this, for you can, what? All prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So we have to backtrack. Who is the all? The all has to be extrapolated. We have to uncover, unpack, peel back the onion on all. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the all. Well, who is all? It's everyone sanctified by the blood of Jesus, i.e. everyone that's been that stepped into a relationship with Jesus. That's the all. So if you have a relationship with Jesus, guess what? Scripture says, not Zach, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that you have a prophetic voice. So the sons of Korah in the book of 1 Chronicles teaches us that we have a prophetic voice. Again, it can seem weird if you've never studied it, if you've never experienced it. So does CrossFit, NASCAR, ballet, or theater, or whatever else you want to insert if you've never experienced it. We also see in scripture that some believers have the gift of prophecy. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. And, and these gifts are listed, but all of these, out of all of these gifts, one does not sit above the other. Having a specific gift or not having a gift does not make you more or less spiritual. The Bible teaches us that God gives his gifts freely to each person. So we each have gifts. We all have a prophetic voice. Some of us have the gift of prophecy. You tracking with me? We can't just read scripture and follow the line. We have to dive in to see what scripture is 
teaching us. All gatekeepers have a prophetic voice. The second group that we see are the sons of Obed-Edom. What do we learn from them? That gatekeepers are people of the presence. First Chronicles chapter 26 verse 4 reads like this. The sons of Obed-Edom, also gatekeepers, were Shemaiah the oldest, Jehozabed the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nathaniel the fifth, Emil the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Peliathai the eighth. God had richly blessed Obed-Edom. Who in the world is Obed-Edom? Who is he? We have to, exactly, he's the guy. We have to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 10. And the Bible will tell us who he is. Because what we see in 2 Samuel verse 6, chapter 6, verse 10, is that King David took the Ark of the Covenant to Obed-Edom. What was the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament? It, it was the symbol of God's presence. And it showed that the presence of God was available to everyone. And the Bible tells us that Obed-Edom was intentional about hosting the presence of God. That's why gatekeepers are people of the presence. We're people that host the presence of God. Psalm 24, lift your heads, you living gateways, and welcome in the king of glory. Scripture shows us that Christ's followers are people of God's presence. Do we actively carry him everywhere that we go or do we pack him in a box when it feels uncomfortable for us? Do we take the fire of the altar and take it to the gates of the city or when we get in our workplace, we're like, not here, Holy Spirit. Pack you away, you stay, you stay put to the side. Unless somebody that has the Bible verse on their desk, if they come and talk to me, then I'll talk to them about you. But the atheist that's running rampant and telling everybody why God doesn't exist, I'm not talking to them. I asked, I asked first service this, I'll ask second service. This one's hard for me as well. When's the last time you had a conversation with a non-believer? Two weeks ago. I heard you, it's all right. I hear a lot of stuff up here. Last week, it's been a while for me. Because this is what happens, maybe every day, this is what happens. Sometimes we get comfortable being around our group of people. Because what I know is, hey, Thursday, Thursday I'm going to show up to our Bible study. I'm going to talk about Jesus to Christ followers. Sundays I'm going to come to church. Mondays, Mondays, my wife goes to her Bible study, and there's some other Bible. My wife goes to her Bible study, and there's a group of guys that come over to my house to hang out because all of our wives are, are doing a Bible study, and we all need moral support because our kids are running around. We're like, Jesus, please help us. So there's three days out of the week that's like, I know I'm going to be around Christ followers, Manny. Manny, we work at a church. I hope you're saved. <laughs> but we, we, we talk a lot about theology. We talk a lot about Jesus. But, but man, when's the last time you stepped outside of that comfort zone and talked to non-believers about who Jesus is? The third group that we can learn from is the sons of Shemaiah. And the sons of Shemaiah teach us that gatekeepers are people of great ability who earn positions of great authority. First Corinthians, or First Chronicles, sorry, First Chronicles chapter 26, Obed-Edom's son, Shemaiah, had sons with great ability who earned positions of great authority. As gatekeepers, we are responsible to develop our ability in order to earn positions of great authority. Here's three misconceptions that will keep you from achieving your fullness as a gatekeeper. 
Number one, this misconception, I think this one's daunting. The number one misconception is this, wanting a promotion is selfish, ambition, and prideful. No, it's not. Here's the truth. God wants to promote his people to positions of great authority for greater kingdom influence. What do we learn about Shemaiah and his sons? They earn positions of great authority. This is never about you. If it's about you and your own selfish ambitions and desires, yes, it's wrong. But if it's about greater kingdom influence to expand the kingdom of God, then why wouldn't God want to promote us? Why wouldn't God want to promote you? Again, it's not about being an individual. It's about expanding the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong with working at a checkout counter. But what if you were the manager of the entire facility? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with being in sales, but what if you were over an entire sales team and had influence over all of them? There, there's nothing wrong with being a nurse, but what if you were a shift manager? There's nothing wrong with working in education, but what, what if you were the principal? There, there's nothing wrong with being an attorney, but what if you were a partner? Can you see the connection? Can you see the correlation? There's nothing wrong with promotion. God wants to promote us, not for our, our own selfish ambition and desire, but so that we would expand his kingdom and have greater influence. I'm going to get going here. The, third, the second misconception is this, that great ability is something you are born with. It's a misconception. The truth is that great ability is something that you develop. We all have gifts and talents inside of us. The question is, are you developing them? Take a look at two, two quarterbacks. Who likes football? A few of you. All right, that's good. It's a good, good illustration. How many of you watched the documentary on Johnny Manziel? Johnny Manziel had phenomenal talent and ability. There's no doubt about it. You watch him on the field. How did he even do that? If you watch his documentary, what you know is this. He watched 0.0 hours of film. He did not continue to develop as a player. How about Mr. Irrelevant? Anybody know who Mr. Irrelevant is? Brock Purdy. Starting in the NFL right now. Why was he called Mr. Irrelevant? He was the last pick of his draft class. He's starting for the San Francisco 49ers. He had talent. Manziel had better talent. He had talent, but he had to develop that talent. Guess who's in the league? Brock Purdy. Guess who's not? Johnny Manziel. Are you developing the talents and the gifts that God has placed inside of you, or are you allowing them to lie dormant? Jesus talks about this parable and he talks about these three individuals and, and they were given talents. They were given this money to, to invest or to, to, to multiply. And, and they're two out of the three that they invested. They double what God had given them or they grew what God had given them. And there was a third and the third, the Bible tells us in the parable that he, he buried the talent. And, and, and the owner came back and he made the investment and he, and he looks at the talent that was buried. And what does he call the person that buried that talent? Wicked and lazy. I pray that the Lord doesn't look at my life and look at areas that I don't continue to develop and call me wicked and lazy. Are there areas in your life, in my life, that we need to begin to develop more and more because God's looking at us and going, hey, in that area, if you're not developing it, and it's wicked, and it's lazy, 
Misconception number three. My position of great authority is something I deserve. No, you don't. Y'all, we don't deserve nothing. That's not true. We deserve hell. We don't deserve anything else. There's two statements that if you can get these in your brain, I promise you they will change your life. I don't care. I don't care what your upbringing was. I don't care how good it was. I don't care how bad it was. I don't care what type of family life you had. I don't ter- care what type of um, obstacles you had to overcome. If you can learn these two statements, if you can get them in your head, it will absolutely change your life. And the first one is this. I don't own anything. We don't own that. We, we own absolutely nothing. We're called to be good stewards of it. You don't own your house. You don't own your car. You don't own your job title. You don't even own your life. God owns it all. The second statement is this. This one's hard, especially if you've had to be an overcomer in your life, but this one's still true. Nobody owes me anything. Nobody owes me anything. I don't care what type of upbringing you had. Listen, I grew up in a crack house. Nobody owes me anything. I watched my parents strung, strung out on crack cocaine. Nobody owes me anything. I, I had to overcome some obstacles. Nobody owes me anything. I don't know what you've been through in your life, but nobody owes you anything. There's a difference in earning a position and, and feeling entitled to that position. Here's the deal. We don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our gifts. We don't earn our spiritual authority. But what we do with our gifts does earn us positions of great authority to be used for kingdom influence as a gatekeeper. That's what it's about. Are you developing the gifts and the talents that God has given you to expand his kingdom. The reality is there's not a worker shortage. There's a hard work shortage. We've forgotten how to work hard, especially as Christ followers in the kingdom. You might work hard in your business life, in your work life, in your family life. Are you working hard in your spiritual life? Or are you just trying to meet the status quo? I give, we have a word of the year Every year for the church, this year was altered. Next year is, come back next year and I'll tell you what it is. But I also do a word of the year for myself every year. And my word or my phrase next year is spiritual depth. Well, Zach, you're the pastor. You got to have more. Yes, I need more. I need more spiritual depth every single day. I don't want to live off of yesterday's manna. I've got to continue to work hard in my spiritual life. We all do. What would it look like if we began to work hard for the kingdom of God? Let let me give you some practicals because I believe that Jesus is just as concerned with practicals as he is with the spiritual. Here's 10 qualities that will earn you a promotion in your life. I don't care what industry you work in. I don't care what you do, but here's 10 qualities that will earn you a promotion. Number one is this, be on time. If you're not early, you're late. Here's the the reality. When you show up early, you're there to serve. When you show up late, you're telling everybody else they have to serve you. Be on time. Number two, have a great attitude. I don't need negative people in my life. I want positive people in my life. Some people are like, Zach, why don't we hang out anymore? Because you're negative. Zach, why don't we get together? Uh, Okay, can we just not talk about all your problems the whole time? I don't, need, I don't need you sucking the life out of me. I need people that are giving life to me. 
Now listen, there's seasons that I walk through with people and I, and I get that, but, but if you're calling me every time you need something, man, that's draining. Be, bring some positivity. Walk into the room with positivity. Have a great attitude. Number three, be, be willing to serve in areas that may be outside of your job description. There is nothing that is beneath you. If, if somebody asks you to do something at work and you're like, that's not in my job description, you're never going to get a promotion. One thing that I can't stand, I can't stand seeing trash on the ground, especially like in, in a space that I'm, I'm called to oversee, that I'm called to steward. Good stewardship, picking up trash off the ground. People walking past trash, I'm like, no, pick that up, pick that up. That's not beneath me. There, there's nothing in your job that is beneath you. Matt, if you showed up to a, a job site or a workplace and, and they needed help in a specific area that was outside of your purview and you didn't help, you wouldn't be a good leader. But I know you, I know your character. You would show, hey, you'd help them get that in order and then you would go about your business. Here, here's the next one. Number four, be crazy honest. There's a study that was done, the number one trait of millionaires, honesty. You wanna be promoted, be honest. Number five, be trustworthy with money. If you're not faithful in handling, in the handling of worldly wealth, who can entrust true riches to you? I didn't come up with that. That's somewhere that I read it. Some of you are like, where'd you read it? <laughs> Figure it out later. Let me ask the room this. Are you actively and actively, are you actively tithing? Or are you just tipping God? How can God entrust you with true riches if he can't entrust you with your paycheck? Here's the next one. Number six, don't make excuses or blame others. I don't need people like that in my life. Number seven, be problem solvers. Do you bring your leader problems or do you bring them solutions? If you're always bringing your, your boss problems and they're always solving your problems, they probably need your paycheck. You have to be a problem solver. The next one, be humble and be teachable. Have a teachable spirit. Number nine, stop hopping from job to job. As churchgoers, stop hopping from church to church. Listen, there's always gonna be something at a church that you don't like. What if you stayed there and helped them grow roots that are deep? What if you actively got involved in a church? If it's this church, great. If you're called to another church, great. I want you to be where God has called you. But don't bounce around from church to church. Don't just point out the negative. Well, I can't believe the pastor. I can't believe the leadership. I can't believe. Hey, what if you came alongside, held up arms, and helped them grow roots deep? I wish our kids program would have. Then go help build it. I wish our youth program had. Then go help build it. I wish our, our worship team had. Then go help build it. We're not called to bounce or to hop around. This, this isn't like a spiritual vending machine. I want this, and if that, that button doesn't work, so I'm going to shake this vending machine, and if it doesn't work, I'm just going to go to the next one. What, what would it look like if we helped build and, and help develop and didn't hop from one place to the next? And the last one is this. Start acting now like the person you want to become and the position that you want to hold. My, my dad used to always tell me this. Don't dress for the job you have. Dress for the job you want. What we're called to do is rise up and take our rightful place. We're called to be gatekeepers. So all across this room, if we could begin to stand.
Because what the Bible teaches us is that we are people of the prophetic. We are people of God's presence and we are people of great ability who earn positions of great authority. And maybe you're standing here, maybe you don't feel like you have much. Maybe maybe you don't feel like you, you deserve to be where you are. You don't, the Lord's placed you there. But what we do have is open hands of surrender. What we do have is a hallelujah. What we do have is worship. That's what we were created to do. So in this moment, can we begin to praise Jesus for who he is?